0: Here we are at the Oh, I Had That podcast. We have a very special guest this evening, Mr. Keith
1: Coogan. How are you doing tonight, Keith? I am great. Uh, I am pandemic fine, as they say. Trying to muscle on with um, as much as you can from the before time to after the bang, bang. Um, when <laughs> I, sorry, I'm a huge Rick and Morty fan. Um, it is... Uh, Uh, It is fun to try to adapt and also keep your sanity during lockdown. I'm in LA and you know, I don't, where are you at? Uh, Just outside Nashville. Yeah. So um, here it's just been, you know, it's a really, really big city. And, and I have to admit, even though most of the time people were locked in their little boxes and then they get into other boxes and they spend an hour commuting on the freeway. So that's not very social. We don't have a public transit system in LA mass transit system. And uh, so, um, uh, and then everyone gets into their cubicles, you know, here. So they got rid of offices. Everyone's working from home. No one's commuting. The roads are dead. And, uh, you know, nine out of the 10 things that you want to do, eat in a restaurant, go to a movie theater, things that are very LA. Um, you know, we haven't been able to do for a year, so it, it has been tough, but, uh, but I'm pandemic fine. How are you?
0: <laughs> good, good. Hanging in there. So, things in LA are still closed down. Haven't really like opened up much at all or
1: yeah, they are projecting we could do um movie theaters again in some areas at 25% capacity and that's pretty exciting. I'd love to get back into a movie theater.
0: Yeah, that would be fun. <laughs> now, in case I mean people will know you from your past work who are uh Followers of OI have that are listeners and anyone that may not we will totally talk about the highlights and the, the the things you've been in in the past and present, but um, people may not know a little bit more about your like family lineage and like uh, the, the Coogan name itself. Maybe we could talk a little bit about that and um, what brought you to the point where then you're in show
1: business. Great question. Uh, So the family, uh i am i guess fourth generation of entertainers uh the family uh has background in uh could i've traced a family member that had born in 1921 no 1821 that um came over on the boat in 1851 from ireland and uh then a next generation down one of the kids instead of being a pharmacist or working on the railroads which is what the coogans had done prior and most of the family had settled in syracuse new york so i still have a lot of family and extended family on the east coast um one of them owns a restaurant that the actual basement of the restaurant where all the seating is has these huge arched um, brick tunnels and you know they're stopped up, of course, and they're like that's actually parts of the old Erie Canal.
0: Oh wow! You know, when
1: it went through here, so one of my families helped build the Erie Canal, and one of my family member had a restaurant. They built bridges and dams. The Irish did a lot of manual labor uh, fleeing from the potato famine, um, and then one of the family member decided to become an actor and go to uh, New York and Broadway and. So that was my great-grandfather who went to Vaudeville. Then he also started working with um, uh, silent uh, two-reeler comedies with Fatty Arbuckle and Buster Keaton. And his son, my grandfather, was born in a trunk. My great-grandmother was in Vaudeville. My great-grandfather was in Vaudeville. And so as soon as a kid is old enough to you know stand on stage they'll get him out and sing a song or do a speech or dance or something and if the kid has no talent then they'll hold an american flag and walk across the stage while they play Yankee doodle dandy this is like vaudeville tradition so uh my grandfather is four um little Jackie Coog, Jack, Jack Jr., or I guess they called him because there was Big Jack and Little Jack. So Big Jack is my great-grandfather and Little Jack is my grandfather. Um, Chaplin sees the Coogan Act uh, at the Orpheum Theater in downtown Los Angeles and um, sparks the kid and he sees an opportunity. He sees a kid that could do the job, possibly. He wants to work with him more, play around with him, see if he's got what it takes. And my great grandmother is like, no, you're not You know, alone with my child. <laughs> Everyone else has to kind of convince her. It's okay. It's Charlie Chaplin. So uh, Charlie had not done a feature yet. He'd only done the two reelers. So this is his first feature. It was six reels, which is about an hour. Um, and he was going to combine comedy and drama and the studio was nervous about that. It hadn't been done on screen before. Um, and there was no script. So that's always fun. Um, It took a year and a day to make and then was released. Uh, The kid was an international success. And the great thing about silent films is you can just take the title cards where the dialogue is and translate that into local languages. So it's a film that was enjoyed around the world. Uh, In the post-World War I environment, there were uh, orphans uh, in the world that symbolically were adopted through my grandfather. Afterwards, he did a series of pictures, some big budget, some self-produced. He had a Jackie Coogan production company, uh, you know, in single digit age, he's uh, uh, making millions of dollars of earnings in merchandising and film production and distribution. He's friends with um, Mabel Norman and uh, um, Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks and Rudolph Valentino, And um, uh, the family was still friends with the Arbuckles, had been invited to San Francisco that weekend and did support Fatty during his um, subsequent troubles after he was um, basically summarily booted out of Hollywood. Fatty Arbuckle did return to direct films under a pseudonym. And a lot of people didn't know that. Uh, And our family had its own scandals. Uh, One of them was when my uh nearing my grandfather's 21st birthday there was a car accident that killed everybody in the car but my grandfather so it killed my great-grandfather a writer for jackie cooking productions a ranch hand and junior durkin who was Mm. my grandfather's co-star in the talkie versions the first talkies of tom sawyer and huckleberry finn um and so junior was killed uh my grandfather stated that his Father died in his arms, basically at the side of the road. The car went off the road, um, and so that was, you know, a tragedy. Also, then he turns uh, of age, and my grandfather goes for his money. He's supposed to have a million-dollar ironclad um, trust fund, trust account, and they'd estimated between um, th- three or four million dollars. Uh, adjusted today, it's about sixty-two million dollars of earnings. And um, what was left was um, uh, about $126,000, which was then split between my grandfather's attorneys and my great-grandmother's attorneys. So basically, my grandfather sued his mother Mm. and uh, lost in court um, to the effect that there was no law saying that a minor is entitled to any of their earnings. Uh, Any miner's earnings is community property of the household and goes right to that head of household who then determines how it's spent. So that law uh, was changed uh, the next year. California introduced the the Coogan Act, the child labor law for kids in the entertainment industry. And it it just established working hours and conditions, safety measures, and um, also made it so that children were beholden to a contract. Because in California, if you're under 18, you can sign a contract, it's just not enforceable. Mm. They said that if a nine-year-old says they're going to do a television series and then they don't show up to work on Monday, there is a financial repercussion for that. It's been a, you know updated over the years to encompass television and um, new technologies where we can actually take the money and siphon the 15% off into a trust fund. It's a block trust account set up in the underage actor's name and the parents can't touch it. So that seems to be working to get more kids, their money. Yeah. Uh, and he was also then, as he fought in the war, he married Betty Grable. Um, he then was Uncle Fester on the Adams Family. And he also <laughs> did a bunch of other television appearances, guest appeared on Brady Bunch and Partridge Family and Wild Wild West. and um, So there was a family legacy to live up to. My grandmother was a showgirl. She was an Earl Carroll girl. And my great-grandfather, my grandfather had married Betty Grable, Ann McCormack, who was a dancer, showgirl, uh, Flowers Perry, who was a showgirl actress, and then my grandmother, who was a dancer, comedian. Um, uh, and so there was a theme with my grandfather's taste in women. <laughs> So my on on, on with the
0: show, on with the show, he would say (laughs) exactly
1: it was we grew up in a carnival where there's this very specific, small group of people that, you know, when people come over for drinks or a barbecue or you go to visit other people's houses, they speak in a language that nobody on the outside can understand what's going on. (laughs) And they all have a shared experience of unshared experiences. They all have these very unique, crazy stories of you know, for them it was being at the beginning of the entertainment industry altogether for film and TV and uh and also just the drunk and druggery, really honestly. My grandfather was arrested for marijuana possession in Malibu in the fifties. Yeah. Of all points it was a big <laughs> scandal back then.
0: <laughs> but when you say they all have uh highlights and stories of that uh world and business they were in. I mean, that brings us to yourself. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, because you were also a big part of not only the 80s, but the 90s. And uh, those are the timeframes that we really love at Oh, I Had That. And our listeners enjoy partaking in that nostalgia and walking through it. So I was excited. I mean, I've been lucky enough to have met you a few years back now. And uh, been in touch uh, over the years and I, I love to have this chance to have you on the podcast and talk to you tonight so um, I even uh, I did my research Keith and I went back and and looked at things I may have missed over the years even like early on we we had some Mork and Mindy and Love Boat and <laughs> some uh, classic television that you took part in uh, leading up to your uh, run in feature films what, what do you remember of those those uh, classic TV shows that you were a part of? Are there memories that stick out? Or
1: But it started with commercial. Television was all-encompassing uh, when I was growing up in the 70s. They had changed FCC regulations. They'd allowed for heavy advertisement to children during certain hours. That way we had the Saturday morning TV block of cartoons and commercials and toys. And also after school, you'd see commercial programming for kids. As well as animated shows and um, after-school specials, you know, designed for uh, children to watch, and of course, great stuff on PBS like Sesame Street and Electric Company and Zoom. Um, so I I started in commercials, and I got to work with Ronald McDonald and Snap Crackle Pop <laughs> and Digum, and you know uh, uh, Mrs. Um, w- Uh, Mr. Whipple, Charmin, and uh, uh, do, uh, you know, products like Texaco and Ford and um, Pillsbury Doughboy um, introduce products like the Shamrock Shake or the um, KFC. particular Fried Chicken was introducing a um, biscuit, a temporary, only available in some regions, sourdough (laughs) biscuit. And uh, obviously, you can still get your biscuits today from KFC. So I, oh, uh, Kool Aid, um, sugar corn pops, uh, just you know, endless food and toy commercials, lots of stuff for Mattel, uh, He-Man commercials, um, and then as you do that and you get your feet wet on the set, um, and this is all just from a desire for wanting to be on TV. I had no idea what my family did. I'm five. How am I going? <laughs> to? I don't know what. I've heard stories. Oh, he was in old black and white silent movies. And, oh, and Adam's family. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know what Adam's family is. That's cool. So I can do that too. Cool, I'll do that. Um, but I didn't get a lot of help with the family because they did, didn't really want, my mom didn't want me to use the Coogan name. So I was oh. Keith Mitchell for all of the episodics you brought up. So it started with Chips. I got cast in it was basically a non-speaking role in chips and it turned into improvise on set, say a couple of lines, it turned into a few jokes. They remembered me. They brought me back for another episode of chips. Um, this one was with uh, Bruce Jenner. Uh, I believe there was a contract dispute between punch and John or something. And so they, we were bringing on like Bruce Penhall and other characters to try to bow and Luke Duke, you know, the mm, Dukes of yeah. brought on the cousins. So whenever you see like characters rapidly change on the show, it just could be either a salary dispute or a conflict or something like that. Um, so uh, then it moved into, I did uh, some television series, Mackenzie's of Paradise Cove with Clue Gulliger and um, some great movies of the week. Um, uh, Jane Alexander and Jenna Rollins and Clue Gulliger in uh a Question of Love, which was about uh, two lesbian moms who were being sued for custody for their kid by the dad who said, that's an oh. unfit household. This was in mid-70s. Keep in mind that this was on television, ABC. Um, so uh, I was working with you know, people that were very close to that theater, that John Cassavetes style, um, Mike Farrell, I, and uh, I did Battered. Which was it? Had also had like Lavar Burton was in that uh, Chip Fields, Kim Fields' mother, um, and uh, so Chips. I wound up doing four episodes of Chips in total because the last two episodes of Chips I did, I actually played the same character, and it was um the Brat Patrol. They had uh, mini chips dressed up in the chips outfits, <laughs> and like five kids. It was you know an attempt at a spinoff and the return of the brat patrol the last episode was the last episode of chips it was the last episode of the season yeah Uh, so i'm i'm a good little show killer here i uh, also did um for apple it was the apple dumpling gang series for disney uh and in that um i think barry van dyke yeah um also sarah gilbert was my sister uh and uh, now of course the Connors. um we, then I did the Waltons and that was a year. So rather than, you know, six episodes or so on something, this, I did 18 episodes out of the 26 that they did that year. So I was in Burbank a lot at Warner Brothers studios and in uh, the canyons, the Santa Monica mountain canyons where they shot a lot of the exteriors. Um, you know, I was out of school for a year. So it, usually you just are out of school for the day that you work. And then you go right back to, and I went to public school the whole time growing up. Uh, and then would balance between schooling on a set, which is usually one-on-one tutoring with public school, thirty kids in a class. And uh, so, Walton's took me out of school for a year. And, um, and then I also did Love Boat and Fantasy Island. I did two episodes of Fantasy Island, one with Bob Denver. Oh wow! And Larry <laughs> Storch um, was—he was Eagle Man. He was vying for his, his son's attention. And uh, I was just into the comic book character Eagle Man. So his fantasy was to become Eagle Man. That was a great episode. And I was also in a Fantasy Island Jr. episode um, that was rock stars. And it was Scott Bayo, his cousin Jimmy Bayo, Jill Whalen, normally remembered from Love Boat, and uh, myself were a rock star kid band who had lost their parents in an accident at sea. And they f- think they're alive. But to be found, their wish is to become famous rock stars, so their parents see them, and then they get and get reunite with them again. I'm gonna have to find that one. <laughs> That's all. Awesome. And I guessed, then I did a lot of live shows, which were the Mork and Mindy, Laverne and Shirley, Silver Spoons, Growing Pains, uh, just the Ten of Us, Raising Miranda, um, Sibs. A um, couple of them were canceled quickly, um, but on Raising Miranda, I got to work with a young Brian Cranston, who was the crazy uncle on the show. Uh, wow. Did you did you um, have
0: scenes with uh, Robin Williams on Mork and Mindy?
1: I did. I had uh, a scene that was with Robin and Pam and, of course, Jonathan Winters, which was fantastic. That's awesome. It culminated in Night Rider. I was about to get to forget any other Uh-oh. show I did for the age I was and how much I wanted to see this show. And, it, and I had filmed the third episode, so it hadn't aired yet when I filmed my episode. So I'm in this car and it's cool. And I'm seeing the stunts and it's just <laughs> great. And they're telling me about other scripts they've shot or are going to shoot. And um, David Hasselhoff is amazing. He's, you know, great with kids and, you know, everyone had a blast working on Night right. That was my question. Um, how, how much time
0: did you get to spend in the car?
1: <laughs> oh my God. Uh, at least two solid days inside of Kit, which was great. Cause I met um, the actor that voices him. And he is not, he was not anywhere on the set or involved in the making of it. He came in at the end of the first season and did all the voiceover at one shot. So when I met him at an autograph convention, I was like, I walked open and I, out of, with no context, I said, you're very comfortable to sit in. He looked at me, William Daniels. And uh, I said, I did an episode of Knight Rider and I spent some time in Kit. He goes, oh, okay, great. in that distinctive voice, um, yeah uh, night rider was super fun part of night rider is we <clears> got to shoot in universal mockingbird square which is known for the courthouse scene in back to the future
0: <laughs> that's awesome and all of this culminates in you how do you how do you then transition what is that big break that takes you from television to motion pictures and was that what was your first feature film
1: well, I had dipped my toe into theatrical with a voiceover performance as um, the young Todd, the fox in the Fox, fox and the Hound. Hound. Yes. With Corey Feldman as the Hound, Pearl Bailey, Jack Albertson, fantastic voice cast. Um, and yet you're pretty anonymous in that. <clears throat> and that was under Keith Mitchell. And that was released in 1981. I'd started doing the voice of the Fox and the Hound in 1978 at eight years old. And they kind of, kept bringing us back so our voices aged up a little bit. And that was a tremendous hit. Uh, It was the most expensive animated film for Disney at the time at $10 million budget, (laughs) but it made 40 something million on first release, which was a record for them at the time. Um, And then it also made another 20 million on a re-release seven years later. They used to put their films in a vault and then bring them out again, put them in theaters. So that movie made like $63 million on a $10 million budget. So um, I'd worked for Disney a few times, the aforementioned Gunshy, the Apple Dumpling Gang, um, and that, and then Touchstone, which is funded by Silver Screen Partners 3, which was the most successful film finance company in existence, you got a 600% return on your money. Is because they did a string of lower budgeted films, mid budgeted films, Five a year, uh, that had huge stars like Richard Dreyfus or Bette Midler. You see, you'd see Stakeout and um, Ruthless People, and they also had more edgier. It wasn't the Disney brand, it wasn't Point of Vista Pictures. These aren't G rated films, but they're not rated R. That was Hollywood Pictures, was a third film division that Disney had. And I did one Hollywood Pictures movie, um, in the army now. Um, that usually has swearing or nudity or too much violence for even their Touchstone brand. But so touchdown. Um, I was Brad Anderson in Adventures in Babysitting. Here we are. Released uh, <laughs> July of uh, 1987. It was filmed January through March of 1987. We did a little rehearsals at the end of 1986 in December before the um, Christmas break and New Year break came right back. Uh, January 3rd, maybe. And shot to the end of March, uh, mostly in Toronto a few weeks in Chicago and then a week in LA for some special effects work. And that was a huge release. Um, uh, you know, thousand or 12, 1200 theaters, uh, did well, they expanded it. It, the box office went up. It was in theaters on average seven or eight weeks per theater. Um, it, it did well for, I, I don't know what the budget is. I can't really say, but, um, it uh everyone was pretty happy it made its money it's not it didn't lose money it's not a bomb but it wasn't a hundred million dollar movie And it's a, uh, and but it, the numbers are fantastic they're solid and then it uh has legs it has a good healthy video release and fans have told me and this is i love hearing these things they said that they used to go to the video store with their parents And pretend to look around for other movies, and then eventually (laughs) just went. Eventually, babysitting seventeen times, or they somehow got a copy and they'd worn out their copy. So, and then it's a healthy cable play. Yeah, it's not
0: only a a good quality film, family film, but it came out at a perfect time uh in like entertainment history for videos video release and eventually cable and uh I just I remember seeing it in all formats we we had the videotape uh we eventually the DVD and also seeing it on you know cable television all the time I grew up with that film it was one of my favorites my family's favorites so it was awesome (laughs) to connect with you years ago after having all that history through my adolescence and growing up and watching you in those films, it was, it was awesome. And that brings me to adventures in babysitting specifically. Cause I, I mean, it was a great cast as well. You had so many uh, people who have gone on to have great careers and uh, good character actors. And I mean, you even see like early uh, uh, Bradley, Bradley Whitford in there mm-hmm. <laughs> as the, As the terrible boyfriend in the French. You also see a
1: screen debut of Lolita Davidovich going by Lolita David playing dumb blonde, although she's a (laughs) striking brunette in the picture. You see John Ford Noonan, a um, lauded playwright uh, in New York, whose brother Tom Noonan was Buffalo Bill in Manhunter. Oh, wow. Um, And uh, can be sweet as punch, but also menacing and scary. You had Bradley Whitford, you have Elizabeth Shue, Anthony Rapp, Maya Bruton, um, so many locals in Toronto. Toronto was kind of burgeoning as a film city, although Vancouver kind of overtook it a few years later in the 90s. Vancouver was all the rage to shoot at. Um, So you see a lot of character actors that wound up on TV shows and uh, still work. To this day, you still see a lot of the deep cast cuts showing you got uh, Penelope Ann Miller, who she had done um, Biloxi Blues, but it hadn't come out yet. So we really caught her on the brink before Carlitos Wade, before Kindergarten Cup, you know, before these big hits. Um, and. Uh, so it was a huge, you know, undertaking big crew and. And all of the lights and the cranes and the late nights and um, tough weather shooting in January, February and March in Toronto and Chicago. Uh, Sometimes it wasn't snowy enough when we had to uh, add fake snow and sometimes it was too (laughs) snowy and we had to remove uh, too much real snow. Um, And uh, we were lucky that I don't believe anybody got uh, seriously hurt, injured or killed while making the film. And I, I don't mean to make that sound like that's, you know, um, like a big deal. But it kind of is because inevitably somebody works too long of a day and they have a wreck. I and mean, what, what happened? What? They had a wreck? They're dead? Um, an accident on set. A stunt that goes wrong. I had a stunt double die on me once for an actual special for a Treasure of Alphias T. Winterborne. Hmm. And it was a short French stunt woman, world famous for jumping off of the Eiffel Tower into cardboard boxes. And she jumped off of a roof of a house in LA for a stunt and, um, unfortunately missed the airbag. Oh no. I'm 12. (laughs) Uh, so it is something that you have to be careful of. You work with um, 400, forget 220 or 110 in your house. We're dealing with 400 watt, you know, whatever it's called. Um, it's a step up. It's way crazy uh the power the weight of things the machinery that can take a thumb off like that take it seriously um a light can fall over gouge an actress's head and give her stitches because somebody didn't put a sandbag on something so it's something you have to pay attention and be careful and there's a lot of people moving around to be able to settle down and focus and shoot and so i I give it up to Chris Columbus for managing so many moving pieces. I'd read that he took the film because it was modest in its scope. He goes, there's no wizards and taking a space. There's no war scenes. He's like, it's modest. as kid's running around a city. How hard could that be to shoot? We,
0: we ran into <laughs> our challenges. <laughs> well, you see his, his success laying the groundwork with that. And then eventually uh, a kid running around his house, Protecting it so, <laughs> with yeah, alone, and so. then a
1: kid uh, running around uh, one of four houses with his fellow kid wizards. Well,
0: oh. <laughs> yeah, he did go on to Harry Potter. That's correct, right? I uh, I always forget he was the the earlier Harry Potters too, wasn't he?
1: Yes, he's the one that secured oh. the deal with J.K. Rowling by promising that he would only use a British cast. He would not cast young up and coming Americans with fake British accents. And she said, "Okay, if you stick to that, and that's why he never called me."
0: <laughs> I could see Keith Coogan as Harry Potter.
1: <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, that I mean that film, Adventures in Babysitting, like uh, was big for a lot of people my, of my generation, and um, still, like you said, has legs. And I still I watched it a couple of months back. In fact, I I could still pop it on at any point. And after Adventures in Babysitting, not a lot of people. Uh, that i would talk to growing up had seen this movie but it's great it's called hiding out and it's with john Cryer. <laughs> i loved hiding out and i think you had mentioned to me one at one point uh which you could maybe delve into a little bit here john crier had a huge part of that movie
1: even seeing the light of day isn't that correct I did not know at the time that he really put all the pieces together. I was just ignorant of that. He found the material and got the producers and funding and um, started it. And, uh, you know, I I mean, it really makes sense because he was definitely intrinsically hands-on during the process. Um, I just took that as an actor kind of taking responsibility for their work on screen, but I realized that he held far more authority than that. And part of his charm at the time and part of his, I guess, gimmick, and that's why Hiding Out was even chosen as the piece, was because he could look and play younger than he really was. Fantastic, you know, <laughs> and he could just capture that awkwardness. So, well, uh, whether he's ducky or he's in Dudes, or um, he, he just kind of embodied something that, I mean, Hiding Out was an interesting also combination, a blending of genres that uh, critics had, had noted they said comedy and thriller suspense interesting because it doesn't put jokes into the thriller suspense part and then you forget about that during the comedy parts and it brings them together at the end uh it you know there's parts that work and don't work uh it is a fun little experiment in tone at times but by taking each seriously it seems to pull it off Uh, bakey gets shot with the shotgun there's good like stunts and action in it um so it was a week in boston and then two months in charlottesville north carolina you know the the bulk of the movie was shot in charlottesville
0: and i think uh crier was even like playing up in that movie i think he was supposed to be like 30 at that point which i believe he he was only in his like like maybe 22 23 right at the time
1: Yeah, they gave him this uh, wig and beard.
0: Yeah.
1: And um, they tried to, you know, give him mannerisms and a drinking and smoking habit and stuff, yeah. like this, his Bastin uh, kind of stockbroker scenes <laughs> and, you know, a bunch of manic friends and stuff. Uh, so then his transformation, 10, 15 pages in, as he's running from the mob, because if he testifies against them for his bad stock deals, you know, they'll murder him. They've already killed you know, the other guy that was in on the deal. Um, So it's fun. You know, he runs to high school and he gets, it's one of those, there were body swapping movies where young and old and vice versa and like father, Mm -hmm. like son and based on Freaky Friday type stuff. So this was kind of like that in a way, especially as he was arguing that, you know, with the teacher who's trying to say Nixon was betrayed by his country. And he's like, Nixon was a crook. Uh, <laughs> I, you don't I, decide what is or are facts <laughs> in my classroom. I, ju- so- I just
0: revisited it, in fact. And I love that scene when he's arguing with him and he's just like writhing in his seat as she's talking about how Nixon was the good guy and all that.
1: <laughs> oh but and I, he does the taxes for you know his date's dad yeah. when he goes and picks her up um, that, that's another all, all that's, those things were very clever very good that's another great one is that yeah
0: i don't you i never realized watching like uh hiding out or mystic pizza or how young annabeth gish was at that point in time i think in hiding out she's maybe 15 or so uh and and uh supposed to be like 17 or so in the movie. And John Cryer is all of like 22, 23, playing 30. And he's uh falling in love with the 17 year old uh, in high school.
1: <laughs> her best friend in the hiding out. Annabeth is this Beth. I think it's Beth Ayers or Beth Ellers. I can't remember her name, but she was on a soap at the time. And she was easily in her twenties, you know, working with this younger teenager, but they're both supposed to be in the same class. But remember she was smart for her age, so she's graded up a few times. Yeah, that was part that she was such, you know, brain. She's mature, um, and so they could they could connect on that level, but they're not allowed to connect anywhere from the neck down.
0: <laughs> I know they're handled the... as
1: well as that whole idea could be handled yeah. at the time. Eighties mean, are not known for being particularly sensitive about sexual harassment or racial issues yeah. or homophobia or anything. Yeah. the '80s were awful. Everything
0: is, uh, everything awful. in those scope has not held the test of time. When you go back and revisit the '80s, but hiding out was good in that it, it it pointed it out. And you even had a joke with him about like staying out of prison or something after his date, and he was like, "I yeah. was a gentleman. I was a gentleman." <laughs> yeah yeah.
1: I'm I'm glad that they cover that and that he makes the right choice (laughs) but I don't believe there was ever a draft where he didn't now originally that film was called adult education and I learned of it in Anthony Rapp's hotel room for adventures in babysitting so we're just sitting there rap and running lines maybe and I look on his coffee table and I see a script and it says adult education and I say what's that And Anthony says, Oh, it's a part. It's too much like Daryl. It's this fast talking, like funny kid. That's like sexually obsessed. He goes, that's Daryl. I don't want to do that next. You know? And I said, do you mind if I call immediately, I'm talking to my agent and I get a a screen test and I got adult education, our crew shirts and payroll and everything said adult education. We got hoodies (laughs) blue college hoodies that had, you know, in that college font and, um, then between that and release, it was changed into Hiding Out. I kind of
0: like that. And it the, was the last like theatrical release
1: movie. <laughs> yeah.
0: It was the last theatrical release movie. I'm sorry. You are
1: going. For uh, Della Rennes Entertainment Group for DEG. Mm-hmm. They had famously done uh, King Kong and uh, and Collision Course during Shadow, Shadow Stevens. Yeah. That also came out, I think, the same week as our movie. Uh, it went into, they went into bankruptcy and it took about another five years before they reformed and the licenses were sold. And then I started getting residuals again. Um, and, uh, but everything was like, they were communicating what was going on while it was all happening. Um, so that was interesting. I hadn't had a, a, a movie studio basically go under between the time you shoot it. And then, you know, it comes out. It was the last one they'd released. Wow. Um, but now that then they turned into DEGC and uh, and Rafaela continued producing. Um, I got an interesting side gig doing the temp voice. Rafaela uh, called me in for Dragon Heart two, just to temporarily voice the teenage dragon, so the animators had something to work with, and then they were going to get somebody else altogether. And I knew that ahead of time. I knew that my voice was going to be replaced. I also did that on American Journey or no, Amazing Journey. The uh, dog and two dogs and a cat. Oh, incredible okay. journey. So, incredible go. journey, the live action one. Me and an actress and an older actor went in and she voiced the Siamese cat and he voiced the, you know, Golden Retriever and I voiced the young pit bull. And we did the whole movie just as a temporary so that they could. Cut it, edit it, and and decided the balance between the animal scenes and the human scenes. And they wanted a rhythm, they want they needed it for some reason. And they're like, Yeah, you know, we're just trying this as an experiment because originally it was shot that they were going to have no dialogue over the animals. So they wrote something to put over the animals. This is from my recollection, so I could be wrong. So I did the whole movie, which was a day or two and a you know, thing while you're watching it on screen, and so cut to the movie coming out and it's wilford brimley sally field and michael j fox (laughs) that's my voice so so it's fun to kind of be behind the scenes in a weird little bit and help people out and this is all through friends of friends or directors you've worked with before or productions that kind of know you that's a kind of fun thing i did a director's contest for encino man Les Mayfield was known for doing great documentaries and behind the scenes and making of movies, but they needed something to show him directing narrative fiction, especially let's direct a few scenes of Encino man. And so me and Ben Stiller. (laughs) And and, uh, another actor friend of mine, Jeff Maynard, who actually went to Samo high together. um, We shot bringing the caveman into the bedroom. And teaching him fire and the lighter scene it was we did 52 camera setups in 10 hours and I lost my voice screaming and yelling and stuff and they just used that to get Les Mayfield the job and then they gave the part to Sean Aston.
0: <laughs> oh and, la- and later on you could bring that up to him when you worked with him <laughs> oh yeah well
1: you know his dad and my grandfather you know yeah. We're related. With oh, yeah, to Gomez, yeah so that's right. Yeah. We were we already my, my grandfather loved Patty Duke or Anna. Um so yeah, we were already Hollywood's a very large physical city. Small There's no real boundary to Hollywood. There is no Hollywood <laughs> city, it's a neighborhood, but it's a very small town. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So
0: um that's funny though, in Encino, Man, that's and then that leads you uh Out of you said you worked with Disney a few times. You also were you worked on Disney's uh, Cheetah with uh, Lucy Deakins, who we know from The Great Outdoors, which was another staple of the '80s, Um, and The Boy
1: Who Could Fly with Jay Underwood.
0: That's right, yeah. Um, And then, of course, you had some turn on TV again. I love you in Twenty One Jump Street.
1: (laughs) Yes, which was with Tucker Gates directing. He was twenty. Yeah. I think he was twenty. He was the youngest director of a TV show at the time. Wow! I think, and he continues to direct today. Tucker, what's up? Remember me? <laughs> but so the thing about that episode is, what it was an Ioki episode. There was no Johnny Depp in the episode because he was um, in the southeast shooting Crybaby. I think he was in Maryland shooting Crybaby. So, oh, wow. Um, they did an episode focused on Aoki and Dustin Nguyen did an amazing job and all of my scenes were mostly with Dustin. That's great. Also, I knew the Deluises just from the neighborhood because I grew up in I grew up in the poor part of Malibu. So Malibu, Santa Monica, the Pacific Palisades, Hollywood, Beverly Hills, Bel Air, you know, Eagle Rock, Pasadena, Hollywood Hills. It's really all one neighborhood do you have a pool? Boom. You're in a certain, cl- there's a weird thing in LA. What's your car like? What's your house like? What neighborhood do you live in? As soon as you say you live in Malibu, they let you into all the other neighborhoods.
0: <laughs> Free pass. <laughs>
1: yeah. So well, you were more uh, growing up in the seventies, then you're definitely had to be a star Wars kid, right? <laughs> I was, I was the first, I was of course a star Trek kid because it was on my nine inch t- black and white TV growing up. I would love star Trek and and I knew at even six or seven years old when that was a re-edited pilot. I'm watching and I go, you know what? That's that's footage from the other one. And that's a recast. Oh, I know Gary Lockwood. Oh, and he was Malibu resident. So it, it's weird when you kind of know the people on TV and then you know the backstories too. Um, and also instinctually you'll go, she was cast because of her rack. That's why she was cast. Um, <laughs> and you'll pick that up. I just watched the great, you heard a great YouTube podcast on one of the writers and creators of Star Trek, the original series, and how much credit Roddenberry took versus gave. And it was pretty, pretty um, enlightening on how they scrambled for episodes on their second season, Piscop. The moment they were picked up for their second season, of the original Star Trek series, they were three months behind schedule because they didn't have scripts. They didn't have sets. And so I listened to this. It's like a two hour podcast on one of the writers of the original series, Star Trek. So I was a Star Trek kid. Star Wars came out and my parents saw it before I did and tortured me with, it's so cool. There's spaceships and lasers and swords and robots. And I'm like, you didn't take me. (laughs) I turned eight January of 78. So that's when I saw Star Wars for my eighth birthday. It had come out in May of 77, for Christ's (laughs) sakes. My parents tortured me that long. And then I was Star Wars. I'm such a huge, huge Star Wars fan. Raiders and Jaws are my favorite films. Star Wars in there. Back to the Future? Yeah, cool. It's not like top three. I know some people that you ask, and they go right to the Back to the Future. I go more Aliens. See, that's the thing. (laughs) I was raised with Clockwork Orange and exorcist and i was raised with dawn day afternoon Mm. and um french connection so i there is i need to see a physical real car and people really fighting and real squibs and good fake blood like i need that 70s real handheld feeling when i watch movies i don't know why i just really like that you really believe you're there And you can still have lots of humor in that. Um, But I like that dry, earn it humor, Mm -hmm. you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. The seventies were definitely a time where it was like just before that, where they really started taking special effects to a new level and they're trying to experiment with that in the 80s like you said like back to the future and 70s had more of that realistic like grit and drama and action that feels like it's actually happening in front of you it's not like oh how did they do that with a computer on the on the back end or <laughs> but yeah dog day afternoon that's such a great movie still
1: well there was a technology change in stunts in the um, 80s they found Um, chemicals that would burn at lower temperatures but give brighter flashes and longer burns it was safer to work with they found fire retardant materials they could do longer burns controlled burns on people wearing chem tech stuff that was like ice cold um they all of a sudden records started getting broken you saw i was raised on movies like the stuntman and hooper And I knew stuntmen. There were stuntmen around Malibu, people on horses and cars and motorcycles and boats. And look, at this point, Burt Reynolds was the sexiest man alive. (laughs) Yeah, I I like it when you feel that you earned it along with it. I like it when something looks like it was hard to shoot. Mm. So you have these great steady shots that boom and crane around and I don't care. I want to feel like I'm in the room with them. You use the right lenses and the right thing. You know, the way the Cohen brothers, where they put their camera on the plane of either between characters or there's a really subtle thing about where you put the camera when you're doing those like close-ups and reverse angle coverage, shot and reverse shot. And um th- so there's many languages of film, a fun film that everyone can watch. Those four quadrant makes huge money at the box office. There's Art films that you know uncover the Panama Papers or the Catholic Church for the, whatever. There's you know serious pictures and um, all the presidents' men, twelve angry men and lots of angry men um, falling down. I'm the bad guy, but uh, there are also films that are just inaccessible to most audiences. Um, either they're too arty, they're too uh, like Stranger Than Paradise, amazing movie because people watch a movie that's just made up of 61 solid uncut shots in black and white, you know, I don't know. I probably got the number wrong. It's probably like 70 shots or something, but you know, and still can you really enjoy something like that? Can you enjoy badly made horror where people are like evil dead, evil dead Two, And, you know, I, I don't know. There's, um, i was also raised i was 10 i think when halloween not halloween but friday the 13th i think that was released in 80 i was probably eight with halloween so halloween friday the 13th and then later freddie um the, you know great horror monsters that was my hammer horror that was my dracula frankenstein and wolfman mm-hmm. it was jason and freddie and um michael mike myers not to be confused with Mike Myers.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Freddie is the first one I remember watching like this through, through my fingers and knowing that I'm not supposed to be seeing this and terrifying me, but making me want more. And uh, one of the reasons I, grew up like renting a lot of horror at the video store (laughs) and getting into those films that my mom was not too pleased that I was watching. (laughs) But a film that you did that kind of like hits that it's like, feels like you're in the room, but it takes like kind of like some slapstick comedy and um what good written comedy, like as far as the dialogue goes, is one of my favorite films, which is book of love. Yeah. I, I love this movie. I, i had to watch it a few days ago just because i was gearing up to speak with you and it's so funny my mom loved this movie i i i think i found it because of her i don't know if she rented it or saw it on cable and then we we had it somehow but we watched it over and over again do you have any stories of filming this now you're teenage you're playing teenagers in the 50s which um i had no touchstone for as a kid like growing up in the early 90s i was like what's that like like but it, it's a great film it spoke to me then just about adolescence and uh coming of age like i think you're it's four buddies all trying to like get that first uh first love so to speak <laughs> under their belt <laughs> kind of kind of like a precursor to what we would see without as much of a dirty edge as like an American Pie or like kind of could be compared to a Porky's, but it didn't go to that like total line of like raunch where it was more just like a uh, well-written comedy and it, you could watch it with your parents as a, as a youngster.
1: Well, Is we that- shot one. Um, we shot a hard R possibly NC-17 version of jack-in-the-box william Cotswinkle's coming of age beat book so this is a beat head heavy psychedelic using author think ken kesey who um has this book jack-in-the-box well you can't name the movie jack-in-the-box think you're you know it's it's the dent jack-in-the-box so you can't do um, that. You can't name it that. So they went through The Great Pretender. They went, they went through so many titles of songs that they could license. They, you know, New Line Cinema had great music licensing. And um, they, uh, Book of Love. And uh, Bo Diddley redid a version of Book of Love uh, that's kind of hip hop and up uh, fresh, fresh in that. And then they licensed. So it's American Graffiti meets Porky's by way of Christmas story. So it's got that Bob Clark world feel, something, mm-hmm. you know, gags like never seeing the father's face. Oh, and, I love that. <laughs> and tripling down on it to where you'd never see the father's face yeah. in the whole film. He's always fixing the sink or behind the paper or whatever. Um, every little thing you'll notice in that there was more of and everything that might have pushed a raunchy edge, we actually shot a little further and then was trimmed back in ending.
0: Well, I think I think it was ultimately a, a good blend of everything. I mean, I enjoy it. I think it's a great movie. I don't know that I I'm left wanting more of the like adult humor or anything. I think it was like a perfect blend of those. Um, were there any? Was that uh, a role? How did that role come to you? Like, was it was it the script that stood out for any reason that you wanted you wanted to be a part of it? Or well, yeah, I mean,
1: you well as an actor it's all flipped it's just you are lucky to get an opportunity <laughs> to get to go up for. So you don't get to pick and choose nothing. yeah yeah unless there's something you're incredibly you know against personally i'm like actors are whores you have no personal feelings just do your job <laughs> um so uh when jack in the box comes along it was a regular audition and i booked it i was hot at the time i had they knew that whenever they're going to release this that i was going to have additional marketing support from Tristar for toy soldiers and from Warner brothers for don't tell them the babies. They're got, he's got two other pictures coming out next year. Book them. And, um, and Chris Young, we've got high school prom, you've got uh, max headroom, great outdoors. Chris Young is you know also hot, hot commodity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We're already friends. We're already friends through Scott Grimes and other friends, mutual friends and stuff. Um, we'd already been hanging out. Nice. We knew each other. Like we'd already helped each other with other auditions. (laughs) So here we get this and we book it. And it was like, we just kind of shake it off. Like, well, yeah, it's perfect. We of course we should be doing this. And we know it's a more modest studio. It's new line. We know it's not going to be Freddie. It's going to be, you know, uh, new line is the house that Freddie built. Um, and, but Bob Shea, the chairman of new line cinema, this was his directorial debut but he hired a producer, Rachel Talalay. She's directed tank girl. Um, and so it was funny to have, to see Bob want to keep shooting one night when it's costing a bunch of money <laughs> and have Rachel who he hired and she go, "Bob, you got to shut it down. Let's go home. And he'll go, no, Rachel, we're going to go one more. And she goes, why the hell did you hire me then?" That was always <laughs> fun. But I know that they've continued their relationship. Um, she directed Freddie's, Back nightmares. The one where the Mario Brother kid gets eaten. Oh uh Freddie's back, Freddie's dead, Fred. Want not Freddy's dead, maybe. I wish I knew her. She also directed uh some groundbreaking Doctor Who episodes, tons of television. Um, she directed Babysitter's Guide to Monster Hunting, which was on Netflix recently. So Rachel was my neighbor in Santa Monica as well. <laughs> I had a videotape that was given to me that was the X rated version of book of love. And finally they tracked me down and I had to give my copy back to them. Oh, I don't have it, but somebody does. And if that tape still plays that, that should be released. That should be released as a Blu-ray DVD special. How did they track you down
0: to know that you had a copy? That's so crazy. (laughs)
1: Oh, Chris. Chris Young's like, you, you still got that copy, right? I'm like, yeah. He goes, call Rachel. She wants it back. And I'm like, fine. And I walked it over to her house. She lived across the street.
0: <laughs> That's funny.
1: <laughs> I gave the tape back. So, had I you- either they didn't want it out or they wanted it as reference to go back to some negatives and put together a special fan edition. <laughs> so, you. So, the- you- I also tell you that Bob Shay threw a party where he would announce how much he'd lost making book of love. Oh no, come on. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's not a lot, but it's still considerable money. Um, but it had uh, you know, DVD. It has a really strong cult following. I know that people come up and they're like, dude, book of love. Uh, I have someone chasing me down for the locations. They're part of a car club. And they're like, oh, we nice. want to know where certain scenes were shot. And it was mostly in Eagle rock uh, kind of East LA, uh, Pasadena, anywhere you could get those neighborhoods. Oh, yeah. but you know, don't forget our cast also had uh, uh, Danny Nucci and John Cameron Mitchell. Uh uh-huh. <laughs> And so that, yeah. Uh, we had um, Bob Shay's uh, sister, Lynn Shay, played Floyd's mother. John Cameron Mitchell's mother. She's of course in something about Mary and Kingpin. And then you had Arquette, Louis Arquette, the father of the Arquettes, as the school principal. Um, yeah, a lot of great great characters out of Jack McGee. Uh, yeah, some, some amazing... <laughs> Even Mar- and, you know, all the interiors were shot in a warehouse in Marina del Rey that was the same mm-hmm. casting place f- for a Christmas story. <laughs> very strange. Very strange.
0: Even Michael McKean in that one as the. Uh, yes.
1: So older Jack Twiller. And then they go, we're going to do these wraparounds with the older versions. And it's going to be Lenny and Squiggy. So David Landers shot as an older version of Crutch. And they shot at a bar in the San Francisco bar in. I think it's called Frisco Bar in um in Santa Monica, West L.A. And it's them having a scene before he goes home and then opens his yearbook. And so I was on set coaching David Landers, <laughs> how to be me. And yet he's like, which leg is the limp? I'm like this leg. And you had Chris coaching Michael McKeon, how to be him. And it's funny is that I had done a and Shirley and actually worked with them Lenny and Squiggy prior in the past. And they That's don't funny. remember that.
0: <laughs> I do think, I do think at watching it, it's funny how they still have like Michael McKeon as Older Jack Twiller, but uh you ended up playing yourself like standing by a hospital bed, like waving as the older
1: (laughs) and my voice uh on the answering machine is still me just now going, Hey Jack, you know, you'll never guess who called, (laughs) updating
0: him on his divorce. That's right.
1: (laughs) And you've got Trisha Lee Fisher, um, who I wound up doing the Oscar telecast with, with uh her sister Jolie Fisher. Um, Bo Draman was Gino Gabuch you had um, oh my god yeah there were some cool oh, our so, camp scene <laughs> and Shank gets the candle up his butt yeah, yeah, up, yeah, ranger, camp? yeah <laughs> r- oh, ranger camp Yeah, ranger camp you know I had no touch tone for this but while we're on set by the way Bill Kotzwinkle was on set for a lot of the times for shooting high school stuff for the prom stuff he'd show up and um, oh, yeah, we were shooting around the house, spying on Spider's sister or something, <laughs> and um, looking at hot books. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you'd see Bob Shay and Bill Kotzwinkel all of a sudden just go a thousand yards away. And there'd be like people with Raja jackets, which is like a club, a high school club. And that was Bill, uh that was Bob Shay's club. He was in the Raja's. So he had them in the background for the hallway scenes of the high school. And so he's sitting there in the hallways dressed in the 50s and there were the cars and the hair and everything. And he's like, flashback, like, wow, it really felt like that. So hopefully I don't have a touchdown in to the 50s only from what I've seen in American Graffiti or Happy Days. You know what I mean? Yeah. But they told us that it was raunchier, it was filthier than you could ever imagine. <laughs> that there was a, a more of a friction between how you're supposed to present yourself in society with fondue and pressed clothes and the degeneracy that was happening with, with um, governmental hypocrisy, c- crazy economic growth, a shifting of um, uh, the sexes. Uh, you still had post-war economy Booming, but also women were like, "Yo, I just worked in the factory. I'm I'm kind of cool with that. I make more money than you, too." What? So it was quickly moving into this, you know, 60s. Uh, it was the last innocent time for America. You had such great music, and of course, you had influences like James Dean and Rebel Without a Cause. You know, in, yeah. and I love the movie within a movie. Uh, we watch Rebel Without a Cause, and then jack twillers like that's it i've got my look i know what i'm gonna <laughs> do i where know my he, image that's what he kept saying my image
0: where he famously leaves his hair gel on the wall Looks <laughs> <laughs> like a hamburger
1: somebody threw a hamburger patty
0: at it <laughs> so had you already oh and, and uh josie
1: yeah from Place. yes
0: you were saying that uh bringing you on you you had uh toy soldiers and uh don't tell mom like they already were aware of them did you already film those fi- uh pictures before uh book of love or were you just already cast in those so it was kind of like
1: your next thing no those- I, I believe i did book of love first then i did don't tell mom hmm. then i did toy soldiers so they and were still the book- they were yeah, still the filmed book in of love, love release date but toy soldiers came out first oh okay yeah they reversed the order of toy soldiers and don't tell mom but i don't remember how book of love fell into that but we did shoot but book of love was shot first
0: okay so what was that like being kind of like going into toy soldiers and kind of being an action film at that point where you're all the all these young boys at boarding school who get taken over by terrorists like what, toy soldiers is such a fun movie <laughs> and you're working with sean astin who you could be like I filmed Encino Man first, like (laughs) later on. (laughs) Well, that happens later, right? Did you do that after Toy Soldiers? Correct. Yeah. Okay.
1: (laughs) But you have, you know, Will. I was already friends with Will just from the teen like promotion circuit. There's like events you wind up seeing the same kids at and auditions you see them at and stuff. So I, although I hadn't worked with Will Wheaton yet, uh, we wound up doing a Tales from the Crypt and the movie Python together after Toy Soldiers. So, Love me some Will Wheaton. And um, uh, also Sean Phelan, who played Yogurt in Toy Soldiers. He's passed now. He had a car accident and was uh, comatized and then mm. passed away uh, decades ago. But um, uh, he will be missed. We've also lost Arlie Ermey, who was the you know, Pentagon military guy in the movie. And, um, but we still have two of the greatest adult actors I could look up to while making a movie. Oh, we've also lost Danimelli, who was also Brody in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Luke Gossett Jr. And Andrew Devoff, famous for Wishmaster. Um, and Luke Gossett, of course, for Officer and Gentleman, and Iron Eagle. What amazing men and actors and people um, and good and bad guys. They are great at playing whatever they play. Uh, so you also had David Kep writing the script, who's written some movies like Jurassic Park and stuff. I don't know. He's kind
0: of it. <laughs> so it one of those things. I was going to say Andrew DeVos specifically is so terrifying and yes. brilliant in that movie. I love that character as well. It's like you love to hate him as the bad guy.
1: Um, he, he brings just enough out-of-control sun that's in over his head that has these anger like temper tantrums and that he's not as even tempered as his father was. Um, And so he brings this menacing yet somehow a scaredness or a vulnerability. There's a few times in the movie where he freaks out and you go, Oh, he's scared. He's shitting his pants. So that's a nice thing that Andrew did. So great. Um,
0: And then of course, don't tell mom, the babysitter's dead. (laughs) It's just a classic. <laughs> and then at that point, it solidifies you as the the go to babysitter movie
1: guy. <laughs> yeah, it does. And that was a, they uh, sprung that on me uh, as when we shot the movie. It was called The Real World. But they had the series coming out. And uh, so they renamed the movie uh, Mid Shoot. We were in the middle of shooting when they said, You have a new title. Oh, funny. I like the title though. It's great. <laughs> and I went, wait a second i, I <laughs> a few years ago i just did a babysitting movie oh man never mind so mid movie mtv says we've got this reality show called real world and you can't name your movie real world and it was supposed to be working girl meets secret of my success oh type really? of, you know she winds up in a position that she's kind of bluffing her way into And uh, the studio liked the family stuff and wanted to do that. So they're like kind of adding more family scenes and um, the writers were just involved all the time and wrote every single line of dialogue together. And I think that's why every other line in Don't Tell Mother Babysitter's Dead is quotable. You could just start and all of a sudden you keep running into these just great lines, Um, all of the dialogue. So, and it was Outlaw Productions, which was, um, they had done Sex, Lies and Videotape at the time they knew how to make something cheap that looked good and um, take some risks they got Warner Brothers as this kind of main label and they're like it's going to come out in the summer (laughs) you would never do that with a small movie like this today we get eaten alive by Marvel and Star Wars and stuff Mm -hmm. so uh, yeah mid movie they said we have to change the name of your movie instead of the real we we pulled we had a you know um, Q&A session or, or feedback session Uh, and, uh, we pulled 13 year old boys and the new name of your movie is don't tell mom the babysitter's death. I hit the floor. I was pissed. I was like, no, one's going to get it. They're never going to spell it the same way twice. There's concatenations and, you know, apostrophes and possessives. (laughs) Uh, and, uh, and it wound up being the only title it could be. It was, uh, worked into a joke on the tonight show, Johnny Carson and uh he's you know made a joke about don't tell mom that something something's dead the, the you know, spending bill's dead and the writers saw that and they were like i guess that it it's a good title after all if it's you know on the tonight show <laughs> um and the ads they did a huge budget for the um, vhs when it came out they did a million dollar budget and huge stand-up you know babysitter's legs sticking out in the vhs stories there you go you got a good one and also if you look at the top it says Home Alone times five.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, uh, I love that pitch. It's Home Alone times five. Yeah. <laughs> and the idea was that a lot of movies, the parents would leave town and the kids would wreck the house, put the Porsche in the lake, run a brothel out of the house, find a pirate ship. Something would go terribly wrong. Uh, it, it culminated in space camp, with the kids getting shot into space because the parents were just not around. <laughs> So in this, they said, what if the mom leaves town but when she comes back, the kids have gotten all their shit together. Um, So she's a career woman now and throwing a shindig and the Kenny's cleaned up and Walter's got good medical care and oh my god, it's like it worked. Uh,
0: Kenny's Kenny's clean cut and he's learned how to cook and he's about to have a date with Nicole. (laughs) That's Kenneth now. Oh yeah, (laughs) Kenneth. Get it right, Metallica breath. so great yeah what and what my one question would be is that your real hair and how long did it take to grow
1: (laughs) uh no so none none time i uh had finished a movie where i had a crew cut oh um and uh so the movie at the end of don't tell him the babysitter's dead when kenny is kenneth know i don't know go to culinary academy or some shit like that um that's the length of my real hair they shaved a little bit into my hairline so that um i took a life cast and they made two hand laced wigs that cost a three thousand dollars a piece so they spent six grand on these two wigs wow they may still be in warner brothers archives which is funny they're like we paid a lot for those wigs we're keeping them um I want to, you, you I want couldn't, couldn't to get out of there with forth. one of them huh <laughs> <laughs> no i didn't i no that's a funny. fan a fan may have bought a pair of kenny's ripped jeans on ebay years ago mm, i don't know how that happened
0: <laughs> <laughs> What? <laughs> <laughs> come on
1: <laughs> that's great
0: yeah so was that so you're saying it was more of a um like Christina Applegate vehicle where it was going to be like a secret of my success, but the the family oh, is stuff
1: is Applegate vehicle. Well, even but even more so, found... but the
0: family stuff worked so yeah. well that they started changing, which is great. I love I love that dynamic of the siblings and her and their struggle with like not having any money and trying to get food on the table and the the back and forth between all of you. It just it elevated the film, I think, to make it um have that because. The thing about like Secret of My Success, it has that like Michael J. Fox has that comedic slapstick style that lended itself to being able to be just in the workplace and still drive that that sort of thing home. Whereas I feel like if this was just in the workplace, we wouldn't have had the same film that ultimately we were given with um, all of you guys being featured more as the siblings, which I really love about that movie
1: look at her, just sit down and connect with Zach and pull open a Cosmo and be like, you know, she's just playing games, Zach. And here, take this quiz. Um, You know, it shows that she's growing up. And when you teach, you wind up learning more than your students. Mm -hmm. And so she's demonstrating her maturity and seeing it in front of her eyes going, oh, wow, I'm kind of growing up. Um, And yeah, that would be we would have been robbed without that she's amazing in it
0: yeah it was great you all were great in that movie
1: thanks well look at uh, joanna cassidy oh yeah i'm right on top of that rose <laughs> she, she gets uh, right on top of that rose more than any blade runner reference or roger raderick reference i mean it's just That's like you, crazy
0: <laughs> like you said though that movie is just like line after line is quotable we even <laughs> ha- we even have a young david Duchovny in that movie it was great. Bruce, head inventory clerk. <laughs> I, love I love Bruce. <laughs> well, I don't want to take up too much of your time here. I'm so thankful to be able to chat with you and get some of these stories and um, have p- give people, our listeners, a little bit more insight into Keith Coogan. But what uh, I know that it was great to see you in the Jay and Silent Bob reboot as yes. Keith Coogan that was amazing everyone needs to check that out that was a great turn playing a a cool keith coogan
1: (laughs) (laughs) i mean you're kind of a dick most of the time (laughs) whenever they have you playing a cameo as yourself they want you to be you know some like horribly twisted version of a narcissistic celebrity narcissistic celebrity which isn't hard to do trust me it's very easy to fall into that um so I, you know, thanks to Kevin Smith for letting me come and play and have fun. And uh, I stayed in the movie. I was very stoked. And believe it or not, the fan base for Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead just seemed to line up with the fan base <laughs> for the Viewisk Universe. So he knew what he was doing. And I you know, I appreciate being in it. It was fun. It's fun for surprise for folks. Fun for me, because when I shot it, I only thought that's all there was in terms of a reference to me. I go, It'll be a quick thing. I'm a spoiled celebrity. No Swedish fish. Fishes are done. Great. Out. And Diedrich Bader, by the way, was amazing to work with. Oh, man. So I shoot my thing and I get invited. Um, on a film crew, there's budget for lunches and they kind of do it per the head because it's like $26 a lunch or something. And so I was wrapped before lunch. And so um, you don't ask. It's not cool. Like, hey, hey, can I stay for lunch? But I'm leaving, and the um, video tap guy, who you know is responsible of giving the live video feed to Kevin, so that he can watch the playback. What? Because when Kevin's on screen, he can't see what's happening. So he goes, oh, "You want to come to lunch?" And I'm like, like a vampire coming into the house. Once invited, yes, you can go to lunch. So I'm eating lunch <laughs> with everybody, and the, and they go, uh, "Well, that's really cool considering the setup earlier." And I go, "What setup?" And then go, oh, there's a whole scene with Brody when they talk about dishes are done. You know, don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. You know, Keith Coogan, classic. And I'm like, you're you're pulling my leg. And they go, no, dude, we already shot it. I'm like, no. And then I didn't know because I think they got the Chris Hemsworth stuff after they shot him against a green screen last few days of the shooting. So it was after, but they had it in the script, you know, um, as Thor hologram or essentially <laughs> hologram, and. Um, you only get your pages on a Kevin Smith movie, so I didn't get the whole script. And my trailer's next to um, Pie Fucker and and Creek, so <laughs> <laughs> Creek. Nobody calls it Creek. Okay, a Pie Fucker. I love it. I got to see Biggs and Vanderbeek do a half an hour back and forth, giving each other shit. Uh, and then that all you see is just this little magic bit. But there was so much great uh, on the floor laughing as they're doing their stuff. So uh, when I finally saw the movie and I see Thor, Chris Hemsworth say, dishes are done, man. In the, you know, accent and everything. And babysitter movie back to babysitter movie with adventures of babysitting and Thor. And I went in the new Thor. I Oh, my God. And if Stan Lee's in the Marvel universe, but Stan Lee's also in the view askew verse, but he's in a Marvel film in Captain Marvel reading mall rats on the bus, that means that they <laughs> exist and Kevin Smith exists in the Marvel universe. That means Keith Coogan exists <laughs> in the Marvel universe. There and we crack go. All we cracked
0: the code. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, but you you've been busy throughout the years. Uh, I, I was looking at all the work that you've done over the years, and I'm I'm so happy that you've been a part of you know all of our lives through entertainment and uh, all that you have to come. It's gonna. I can only see good things happening for Coogan once this lockdown ends and we can all get back to going to the movies and live in the real world
1: <laughs> well thank you uh and i you know i will admittedly say that um i am absolutely lucky to still be in it and a uh, good agent and be auditioning currently i just have sent in an audition this morning for something great and uh so i'm having a lot of opportunities right now no in-room auditions those are done it's all film your audition and send it in now so there's no That's more awesome. schmoozing in the casting office <laughs> <sighs> that just really hurts my career anyway
0: um, oh you're so one, you're one of those you're one of those special people that can that <laughs> gets it in the room and doesn't have trouble you like going there and just uh showing your charm <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah i can't act so yeah you know, <laughs> oh come on <laughs> yeah so yeah it's thankfully it's um it is hollywood still goes on and you know they find a way to shoot essential industries if you can believe it media is one of the industries that is essential workers
0: yeah like, i guess it has to tie-in when they if they want the news on the tv they got to tie all of it into it maybe it's the the media their end of it and
1: we're all at home. We need entertainment. So <laughs> we do. we'll do. we go nuts. Yeah, we'll go absolutely nuts. Yes. We need good entertainment. We just need a way to process what's going on. I'm glad it's essential. It's also money. It's a lot of money for the state and revenue and taxes in California. You know, not all of the uh, production is run away from Hollywood. There's still so much produced. Uh, so Hollywood is out and still at it.
0: That's awesome. Well, thank you so much again for your time tonight, Thanks, Keith. Sir. It's such a pleasure to have you. And uh, I've loved getting to know you over the years and I can't wait to talk to you even more in the future. Thank you again. Awesome, man.
1: Thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate it. Keith Coogan, you're at oh I had that. And I just have one thing to say. Dishes are done, man.